This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Another good one for you here on episode 64 of Play by Playcast. As always, my name is Joel Godet, television and radio voice of the Ball State University Cardinals, and finally, that feels like it's a real thing. It's been this like amorphous thing that I say every week over the last couple of months, but I'm actually going to call some games of the Ball State Cardinals this week. We are back in full gear. Volleyball coming up Friday night. If you're listening to this on time tonight. Uh, the Cardinals will take on Bradley and then probably leave Worthen Arena about 10 o'clock. I'd say probably about a fair guesstimation. Hop in the car with our ticket guy, Matt Brown, and Tyler Bradfield, my radio sideline analyst, and make the drive over to Champaign, Illinois, and get some semblance of sleep before waking up early for an 11 o'clock local time kickoff to start off the 2017 Ball State football season as well. So a busy couple of days, but an exciting couple of days. Uh, as uh, college sports season is in full gear now. Football is the last of the Ball State uh, fall sports to get going. Field hockey, soccer, cross country is actually going this weekend too. Uh, Volleyball. So uh, everything is in full swing. Video board shoots, video board edits, all that stuff. It's a wild and crazy time in the old office up in Muncie, Indiana. The green screen wall has been getting a lot of work uh, over the last couple of weeks. Anyway. Uh, if you did not hear our episode with Alan Bestwick last week, uh, I, I suggest you go back and, and take a listen to it. Really good conversation, if, especially if you're a racing guy, about what goes into pr- preparation and production of racing on television and uh, just kind of the, the in-depth nature of how big a crew is, how long you guys spend together when you're producing uh, NASCAR races or IndyCar races. Uh, really intriguing stuff from Alan Bestwick. So if you want to go back and check that one out, uh, please do. Dave Jagler was our guest on episode 62. Tony Caridi from the West Virginia Mountaineers, 61. Jared Sandler from the Texas Rangers, episode 60. Our archives, as always, all previous 63 episodes, 64 if you count the intro, uh, are available to you on iTunes or on Stitcher. So uh, have at it. Uh, if you want to hit the back catalog. If you want to interact with the podcast, you can find us on Twitter. We are at PXPCast. I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. And then you can hit me up via email as well, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. And then remember, rate, review, all that good stuff for the podcast. If you, you go on iTunes, throw a couple little stars, a sentence about the fact that you listen, uh, or at least retweet it, tweet about it, whatever, um, just to let people know that uh, you're checking it out and uh, just helps spread the word and helps grow uh, the old play-by-play cast. All right, on to today's guest, and I don't want to go too long here because Sean Grandy and I uh, talked for almost an hour last week for this episode of the podcast, and it is one of the the wonkier episodes I think we've ever had but I really like it uh, for that reason. We really get into um, how Sean does what he does and some of the t- 
technical aspects of all of that. Uh, and we talk about the Celtics, yes, but I think if the the whole thing is fifty four minutes. Uh, maybe twenty of it, twenty five of it is Celtics related. I mean, we talked about a really wide array of things because Sean's done a wide array of things. He's forty five years old, has done Boston College football, has done uh, television work for numerous outlets, CBS College football. Um, he just relieved his duties as the play-by-play voice of Bellator MMA. We will talk extensively about that. Uh, and then he's been doing the Celtics for uh, the better part of you know this century. Uh, he called his thousandth game in the NBA a couple of years ago, back in in 2015. Uh, so a lot of different things that we can dive into with Sean Grandy. But when you get two uh, smart marks together on <laughs> on a podcast. Uh, we of course had to talk wrestling to begin things. No, uh, um, for those that don't know me, I am, I'm a, my, my Monday nights are, are taken. I, I watch Monday night raw. Uh, I am a, an admitted pro wrestling fan and, uh, and Sean is a, a huge pro wrestling fan as well. And we, we talk about, uh, his relationship with gold JR, uh, Jim Ross always comes on, um, whenever he can, the Celtics broadcast in the second quarter when they go to Oklahoma City, and they talk basketball, among other things. Uh, they talk to Marcus Smart. There's uh, one of them that you can find on online because you know, Marcus Smart's an Oklahoma State guy uh, going back. So uh, Sean does like his pro wrestling. I do like my pro wrestling. I get pumped up by going to my softball games over the summer that I play in my intramural leagues by uh, listening to Sasha Banks's theme song. Like, that's just where I'm at in life. Uh, so... As we recorded this last week, it was the first week following SummerSlam, which is the second biggest day of the year in wrestling. Maybe the third. WrestleMania, Monday after Mania, and then SummerSlam. Uh, so, so, aside from asking about broadcasting, which we will get to extensively, we begin our conversation with Sean Grandy with his review of SummerSlam 2017. I watched a lot. I was with my son, so I, was, I didn't see all of it. I watched quite a bit, and it's funny. I'm sort of creeping back. I have a... Uh... As most people know, I have a pretty tied in history with the business and <laughs> the company specifically, but I have been out in the last two years doing the MMA. I, that was my whole, my life was my son, the NBA, and then MMA. And so there wasn't a lot of room. So I wasn't like a hardcore viewer. So I'm just sort of creeping back into it. But I really, it's been a great year for great matches. There's probably never been more great athletes in the business than there is now, but I, I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm fascinated to see where they, you know, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying the time that I can sort of get back into it a little bit and, and catch up. I was a huge fan as a kid and then I got out of it. And then, uh, when I got the ball state job, our, uh, our corporate sales guy is like a diehard goes to every pay-per-view, like has all the chairs, throws a Royal rumble party. Uh, so I got back into it hardcore like four years ago. Um, and now for like my Monday and Tuesday nights are like antisocial. <laughs> I talked to, um, in a few years ago, Tom Phillips reached out to me when he first started there. Like we wanted to just like meet up when I came through town and whatever. So I've sort of stayed in touch with him and they really love his upside. You know, it's like a lot of guys like Tom Phillips, I guarantee you this, like a lot more money than you are, but he would <laughs> rather be doing what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? Like he, it's it's that trade off in the old days. If you were like Michael Cole coming out of school, 
you had to make if you were if you were me at my age, you had to make the decision. And once you were in, it was like the scene of Field of Dreams. Once you cross the line, you can't go back. Now it's a different animal. Now you have you know coachmen on Sports Center, and yeah. you know guys can go back and forth because it's a different era. The era you grew up in, there's crossover. All the, it's really the the Hogan generation. Everyone in the uh, watched Hogan as kids. Yep, it was a lot more acceptable. And those people are now running networks and making decisions, and they don't have any, you know, the stigma that was attached to it in the previous generation doesn't really exist anymore. Can you kind of talk me through your history with it? Uh, it started, I was like eight years old, you know, obviously I'm much older than you, and started to be much older than most people, I find, <laughs> when I have these conversations, but... I was I was just an eight year old kid who just got you know drawn in. I think I was lucky enough to be a kid in the territorial era. You know, my first couple of years were in the territorial era before you know Vince took over the world. And I thought tape trading and all that. business. Yeah, I mean, you could watch the show from Georgia. You could watch the show if you grew up in New York, like I did. You could watch the Georgia show and the Florida show, and you could be a fan by the magazines that you know kids used to read actual magazines before the <laughs> interweb there. And, you know, I was looking, if I grew up, you know, I basically grew up in Madison Square Garden. So I was able to go to a lot of those shows when I was a kid and, uh, you know, grow up watching Bob Backlund. I have, I've, I've said this line before many times, but I can, as a, a party trick, I can list all like 60 something Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden in order. I call it a party trick for what I would only imagine would be the worst party <laughs> ever thrown by anybody anywhere. You could turn it into but a yeah, power it's always hour, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had, um, not, not, not to be a name dropper, but I just happened to see him and he's doing great. I had breakfast with uh, Jim Ross over the weekend, you know, in, in Brooklyn. I went to see him and um, we've been friends for about, 10 years now and always try he's gonna he's been a guest every time we go to okc he comes on and does the second quarter i was uh, watching one of those uh so, yeah i found i found yeah. one online and it's uh it's a blast to uh, do and we couldn't do it last year like many things in my life it got obliterated because of uh mma because of bellator so we're just sort of like locking that down for for november but he always said you know he always was fond of something people would always ask him name a sportscaster like a regular stick and ball sportscaster who'd be a great pro wrestling announcer and he always said me which was very flattering but I never thought I would be you know I, like to me Morrow is Morrow's a great pro wrestling announcer there's a there's a cadence and there's an over the top thing that you have to do that uh, and this is really podcasty wonky play by play stuff that's what we're here for I so, had yeah. to dial I suppose to dial up to do MMA and to do Bellator the way we were doing it, I had to try to find a new, you know, everything was new about it for me, but I had to try to find a voice. I had to, which to me, if, if pro wrestling is at 100 and a regular, you know, not high or low sports play-by-play is a 50, MMA isn't a 50. It's not a 100, but you had to kind of ramp it up a little bit, and I was always trying to find that spot. Now, Moro is... Morrow's got a pro wrestling cadence, and that's why he's so good at it. And obviously, he loves the business too. But I never thought I could. I, I, 
that's at one point of being Shane McMahon. I thought I could do that. I thought I could get in the ring and have 20,000 people chant nasty words at me <laughs> and hate me instantly. I thought that was very possible until I was at Target Center. It's almost 20 years ago now. He took his first of many bumps from the top rope through the announce table, and that's when I realized, yeah, I don't think I could be. That dream died. I could be Shane once, and that's about <laughs> it. And then Sean is gone. Um. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's the end of that. Uh, w- talk to me about the, the Bellator, um, experience that you had, um, really from a broadcasting standpoint, when you ventured out into it, um, and I mean, obviously you've done so many different things, but, but what was exciting, scary, uncharted about going into that world, um, when you did it two years ago? All of it, all of the above. Um, what I said many times in 2015 before, another buddy of mine, Mike Tirico, got the gig, using it as, as an example, is that if NBC had called me in 2015 and said, listen, Al's almost at the end of the road and we want somebody a little bit off the beaten path to take over the spot and be the guy, it would be outrageously flattering and it's the top job in our business. But I wouldn't have had concerns about whether or not I could do it because it's football and I could do it. The MMA thing was the debate I had internally amongst you know myself and you know my brain is, do you want to jump off a cliff and do something you've never done before? Like, do you want to keep doing the same old college football, college basketball stuff, whatever? You know, around the Celtics schedule, or do you want to do something at this point that is, you know, quote unquote, legacy changing for better or worse? Because the scary part of it was. Who knows how it could have gone? And there was a fan base, and this is not me being critical. I would have been one of them that was, you know, suspicious is the wrong word, but they had had a lot of guys come over from quote unquote stick and ball sports and gone to collect a paycheck or whatever and didn't put time in or didn't do the work, and they ran them out on a rail. So there were people, you know, I was a complete outsider, and I was viewed as an outsider when I started. So that part was. It was just a challenge. There wasn't another challenge like that out there for me. There was really high-level stuff, but this was a high-level television show, just doing a sport I had never done before. So it was, as I wrote when I realized you know, a couple of months ago that I, I could not continue to do both. That was just the harsh reality of the Bellator schedule, which had completely changed and had gone from being a show every three weeks or so to during the NBA season, three shows a month, at least one of them being halfway around the world. And it got to the point where, and you know, this sounds great when you're your age, this sounds great when you're my age, not so much of <laughs> going to, we would set up, you know, the international uh, expansion of Bellator got crazy. We would do a show in Ireland, say on a Saturday. And then the next Friday in Torino, Italy or Budapest, whatever. Okay. Sounds like a great seven or eight day tour of Europe and all my friends and my colleagues and my broadcast partners and our producer and director, they would stay over there and have a great week and then do the second show. I had to fly back and do a couple of Celtic games, who knows where, you know, in Florida or Texas or Indiana or Boston, and then go back at the end of the week to do the second international show. So it just got completely out of control. And I wish it could have lasted longer. I wish we could have found a way to do it, but it had just gotten completely out of control, but it was outrageously rewarding to go into that world and do the show that we did for two years. And I think you get so concerned with climbing, when you're climbing a mountain, 
trying to accomplish something and turn that show into what I really wanted it to be, which is sort of the Sunday night football of MMA, sort of like the go-to place on free TV, on basic cable, you are striving to make the show better, to make the show great, to get the, to get the company to where you want it to be. You're not really looking back down from where you started two years earlier. And obviously when I had a chance to do that, uh, you know, we accomplished a lot as a team in two years and it was as rewarding as I could, you know, possibly imagine. Who'd you talk to or, or what did you do? Uh, how do you, how do you expose yourself to something new like that to not get to the point where you, you have a grasp of it, but to get to the point where you're, I mean, knock down, drag out, comfortable with it. And, and you can talk about the history like you know it, and you can talk about the maneuvers like you know it and not ever be worried that you're going to get exposed. You're probably, the more you try, and this is true of anything, the more you overreach, you're going to be exposed. Uh, the one thing I said a lot at the time was that it wasn't like it was a 23-year-old sport, 22-year-old sport at the time I started. So it wasn't like you were studying the history of the Visigoths. You know, that wasn't on YouTube. MMA, the history pretty much was. And, you know, you study as much as you can. You find the people who know about it, and you talk to them, and you spend time with them, and you watch fights, and you learn everything you can. And when I first started on uh, July 17th, 2015, I was going to know as much as I was going to know, as much work as I could do leading up to that, particularly when there was a lot of confusion with the company and making the changeover and getting me signed and started uh, essentially that show for me. And this is talking about being thrown into the fire. I've had short notice situations before, including one at CBS last year that led to this, uh, the, the nickname that they've stuck me with, which, you know, I guess we can get to, but the last minute nature of, I was scheduled to debut in late August, and around the 8th or 9th of July, the story leaked that I was I had stayed signed me and I was taking over, and they didn't want my predecessor to do another show knowing he was going to be replaced. So I got a call eight days before the show saying, well, we know you were going to have seven weeks to get ready for your first show. Now you have seven days, and so you're going to be on the air when you're going to be on the air, and you... You know, you do what you can do and you get better and better. Here's my sense for in this podcast form and not this TV Conan talk show slide over after five minutes. I can tell you the whole story. This, sure. is, a, this is a play-by-play. This is a play-by-play 101 type of thing people ask me about the MMA because this might be the best example of it. And to some degree, you have to know the sport to know why this is significant, but I'll explain it. What Tim Corrigan, who's the lead producer on NBA at ESPN, is a good friend of mine. And we had a conversation, a random conversation one day in his queue down in Bristol uh, when I used to go and visit all my friends before, you know, they all got fired over the last couple of years. I would go down there and say, uh, you know, he, we, you try to learn a lesson every day from somebody. I say that with uh, ESPN Classic on right now, watching, you know, Brent Musburger, one of my idols doing an old, uh, an old Oregon game, that the ball in the play-by-play spot, particularly on TV, the ball will come to you. It's your job to be ready when it does. And all you can do is do your homework, be prepared, study the history, study the fighters you have, study the fights, know the storyline, get in and out. If you have a great analyst who you're a good analyst who you want to make great, like I have with Jimmy Smith, that was a big part of what I wanted to do in two years is to get him to where I thought he could be because he's so, so good and, and so far and away the best analyst you know, in MMA. We had their, uh, a fight last fall. It was a light heavyweight world championship fight 
between the defending champion, a guy by the name of Liam McGeary, and a fighter from the UFC named Phil Davis, who had come over and won a couple of fights, and he, had he was a national champion at Penn State. So they're in this fight, this championship fight, and Phil Davis is dominating the champion. He's up four rounds to none. But in MMA, and I had done a lot of hockey growing up, there's a sudden death nature to MMA. That it, which makes it tough from a play-by-play standpoint when you're trying to find a baseball game has a rhythm, a hockey game has a rhythm, a football game has a rhythm. MMA could be going one way, a fight, and in two seconds it completely turns around and the guy who was dominating loses. It can happen. True. That's, it's you know a knockout can happen in any second. So it's a different cadence, and you know as things are going on, you're going to get burned at some point. Now, the challenger is up four rounds to none at this point. He is dominating the fight, but Liam McGeary, the champion, is a very dangerous submission fighter, particularly on the ground. Great jiu-jitsu. That's how he beat Tito Ortiz in his, in his first title defense. So as this is going on, you're flashing in your mind, okay, the champion is clearly down four rounds to none, but he's, he's very dangerous. And in the sport, anything can happen. A year earlier when I started, on my first night, there's no way I could have had this information cataloged, but yet from studying everything, from just the osmosis, from just continuing to work to learn everything I could, a famous fight from the UFC and the history of the sport did pop into my head. And on that night, calling this fight, the third man in our broadcast booth was Chael Sonnen. And Chael Sonnen had been in this fight when he led Anderson Silva four rounds to none and ended up getting submitted in the fifth round and losing as the challenger. And it's one of those moments, and you know, it's one of those play-by-play moments you rarely get it, where all of a sudden everything just clicks. And not only can you reference this thing, and this happened before, sitting next to you is the guy who was in that fight. And that has to do with the, the cumulative nature of preparation, that everything you do in every sport prepares you. Mike Tirico and I have talked about this a lot. A conversation you have with an offensive coordinator four years ago, if you're ready for a football game, you might learn something in there you use in an NBA game four years later. You just have to always be listening and always be learning. This may be a silly question. So it's a podcast answer for you right there. Well, no, no, I appreciate you (laughs) diving into it from that perspective because, and this might be a silly question, um, is, is, is it just being attentive or how do you catalog that how do you you know when you have all these conversations with people is it just through osmosis and then hoping at the right moment the right thing clicks in your mind or what what do you do to kind of keep track of of what you learn as you have conversations throughout time well you're not you're not making a file of things like that but you in preparation for your game in that example, in that imaginary example, next week I'm going to do a football game for CBS. I'm going to sit down. Uh, you know, Butch Davis is coming back to coach down at FIU. We're going to do his first game back, and I'll sit and we'll, I'll talk to Butch Davis. I did some Butch Davis games years ago when I was a young guy doing Boston College and Miami was in the Big East, and we'll have a conversation. And he may say something to me that is related to that game, and I may commit it to memory or it's part of my preparation for that game, and. Maybe it gets in and maybe it doesn't, but in your preparation, you're learning things about a team, about a game. And so there are things that Tim Corrigan thing I mentioned, that conversation was, I don't know, six, seven years earlier. And yet I always reference it in talking about that Chael Sonnen moment because the ball will come to you again. It's a matter of 
you know, you shoot 100 free throws after practice every day. It isn't necessarily about the next game. It's one day you're going to have a free throw for your life with the championship maybe to be decided because of it. And it's not the free throws you shot the previous day. It's the free throws you've been shooting your whole life that had you ready for that moment. How much better do you think it's made you to have dabbled in uh, the amount of different things you've done uh, and the amount of different sports you've done um, as often as you do it? I I don't really know the answer uh, other than to, you know, it's, it's almost throwbackish now. Um, you know, now in, in this day and age, I think people are really specifically identified with one sport. And I think in the olden days, this is, this is sort of what you did. You just, you know, a sportscaster did all these different sports. I don't know how much of it was by design other than you just, uh, when I was, if I speak at a sportscasting camp, let's say I do one in Boston and I come in as a guest speaker. What I do is I say, all right, how many of you in here want to become the voice of the Boston Red Sox one day? And of course, 80% of the hands shoot up. <laughs> so then you, then you start explaining the math. All right. How many spots there are, uh, there are 25 guys on the team, but there are only three spots in the organization for play-by-play. That's number one. Then you do the math about the jobs. And my point being is that your dream could be to become the voice of the Boston Red Sox, but if the Calgary Flames call or the Arizona Cardinals call or the or New York, the New York, New Jersey Red Bulls call, you the more the more diverse you are, your ability to be ready and to say yes. I mean, I'll never forget this in 1998. During the World Cup, the local what's now about to become NBC Sports New England, which was Comcast New England, which was Fox New England before that, <laughs> I've been doing some hockey hockey work for them. Yeah, that's the nature of it too. Uh, <laughs> they asked me, well, "We need you to do. Uh, can you do a soccer game? Can you do an MLS game? We need you to do one." And of course, you know, I don't have to tell you what's the answer to that question when they ask it. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. I had never been to a soccer game. Okay. The answer, but the answer is yes. I was 26 years old. The answer is yes. It's always yes. And you study and you learn. You do the same. You know, the, the story of a game is the story of a game. The story of any athletic competition is the story of any athletic competition. And you're, you know, why does, why is country music so successful? Because of the stories, you know, because they, they tell stories. People want to be affected by it. And most of us grew up by sports and that's what we are affected by. Every game, and every athlete, there, there's a story in there. That's, I think, one of the things that I was, I really enjoyed the most about MMA was meeting the fighters, getting to know the fighters, and then being able to tell their stories. One of the things we changed about the show, when I first started at Bellator, they had a habit of what they like to call TV-wise stuffing the fighters. And what that meant is you go to commercial and you get the next two fighters in the cage that when you come back out of break, you got a fight ready to go. The concept, the theory being action, action, action. Well, we just spent how many minutes talking about WWE? These WWE shows on TV, are they just matches over and over again? Or are there promos? Are there backstories? Are there, why are we watching these two guys punch each other in the face? Yeah, the vignette's that the biggest matters. thing. That matters. Well, you know, you could make the argument, okay, Spike, they just watch Cops. Guys been drinking on Friday night. And they just watch cops, and they just watch them drag this, you know, this skinhead out of his, you know, girlfriend's house and throw him in the back. And now they want to watch guys punch each other in the face. Okay, but even those guys are more interested in watching the two guys punch each other in the face if they know why they're doing it or what they overcame to do it. And one of the things we changed was we did a lot more of what I call the walks, 
which, you know, cover the fighter, because we don't have a lot of time. WWE puts these guys on TV every week. In Bellator, our fighters were fighting two, maybe three times a year. So every second you could have them on the screen to tell their stories was a benefit to me. So we did a lot more of the walks, and I just found a creative way to, you know, to tell stories and to, you know, analogize and whatever about them so people could relate to the fighters that they were, you know, as we started to build some stars and, and build the roster. But that's no different from, you know, you could say hey, there are going to be people who are going to watch college football on Thursday, next Thursday, because they miss it. And, okay, it's FIU and UCF. Maybe I don't really have a dog in that fight. But why am I watching this game besides the fact, hey, college football's back. That's great. Well, what about Butch Davis coming back? He didn't have to come back. His legacy is his legacy. They wanted to come back. Scott Frost, is he the coach in waiting in Nebraska? His phone's going to start ringing. They won. They didn't win a game two years ago. In his first year, they went to a bowl game last year. Can he, who, you know, he quoted Bill Parcells and said, Bill Parcells always taught him it's much harder to go from nine wins to ten than it is to go from two to nine and make the playoffs. And that's what he's sort of trying to do, you know, in his second year. And, you know, within college football, every story of a kid who got kicked off the team three years ago because he overslept and missed a walkthrough. And for the last two years, he's been begging the coaches to get a staying in school, begging the coaches to get back on the team. Last week, Butch Davis gave him a full scholarship for his senior year. These, that's just one story of – you know, how many stories that you're going to get a chance to tell, hopefully, during a game. So that's the point of being able to do the multiple sports. And listen, I grew up with, you know, with Marv Albert and with guys who did that, who did the multiple sports. And it's, it's, it's funny, I grew up watching Marv because, you know, Kenny's become a very good friend of mine. And we always joked that the two of us could do the Olympics by ourselves. <laughs> you know, they just, you know, <laughs> they just set us up in a studio in Stanford and do like luge and bobsled and we can cover, you know. Kenny, Kenny has that sort of same mentality as, you know, Kenny's doing baseball one day and football the next. And it's not, it's not easy. This is one of the hardest things I do to do a football game in the first football game of the year when teams aren't set and you can't watch tape on that year's team. It's hard. It's not, it's not easy, but it, you know, as I like to say, it beats working for a living. Be careful what you wish for, because they might just have you do the whole Olympics uh, at some point. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but the thing is, in this day and age, I could probably do it from my office. Exactly. You know, that's yeah. <laughs> just send me a couple of laptops. And, yeah. You mean I don't get to go? I got Korea? my first taste of that. Well, it's funny that you talk about being prepared for something because uh, now one of the big issues in the NBA, particularly you know, with radio, is that the broadcast locations are horrific. There is yeah. none worse than Boston where I've been for the last few years. Unable to see the court. I have an obstructed view of the court. I've been calling games off TV. Where do they put years? And, uh, it was, we are in, uh, the corner basically not high enough to be able to see the court. So oh. you're maybe what would be the equivalent of about 10 rows off the court, but you're well behind the baseline. So as Joe Tate, the legendary voice in the Cavaliers said, he called the first game, which was, Funny how times don't change. It was a Celtics-Cleveland season opener with LeBron James playing for the Cavs <laughs> nine years ago when the Celtics was on banner night. That was the first night of the new location. And as Joe Tate famously called in the middle of action that he could not see, he said there's a shame up. We called it so-and-so to so-and-so in the corner and a three made by a player to be named later. <laughs> that's fantastic, actually. And that's uh, But anyway, that I, I was trained for that because about six years ago, I went down to Bristol for the weekend and spent the weekend with Fran Fraschilla calling the FIBA America's tournament from, you know, we were calling it, I'm making finger quotes now, from Buenos Aires, which looks suspiciously like central Connecticut <laughs> that weekend. And you, 
you know, you learn that dynamic. Listen, there's going to be a lot more of that. Let's face it, particularly for your generation. Yeah. Of play by play, there's going to be a lot more of that. The upside is how many people your age and younger are getting experience now because you can have so many events on the internet and you can put the volleyball in the run. There's no real cost, you know, attached to it when you have the internet or you're doing it from a central location or so. And I think we all start, listen, all of us started watching games on TV. There's a tape somewhere. My mother will put this on eBay, when she needs the money. There is an audio tape of me getting called to Thanksgiving dinner when I'm like six or seven years old, calling up, calling that the Viking, the lions game off TV on Thanksgiving Day into a tape recorder, you know, because that's what we, that's what we did. That's how we started. I want to dive into storytelling a little bit more with you. Um, and, and I guess there's two, kind of two routes to go with it because uh, I'm curious in, in the television form, but also in the, in the radio form when it comes to doing Celtic stuff as well. Um, when you talk about the storytelling nature of what we do, being kind of the basis of every sport, you know, however you shift from, from game to game or whatnot. Um, and maybe the answer to this is just doing it and practice. Uh, but how have you gotten better at telling stories and kind of found the right way to tell stories and weave stories? Um, and I know it's different on, on TV and radio, um, but what what goes into... You know, like Tariko's the master of in 30 seconds telling a guy's life story as he's lining up, you know, in the slot. That's an interesting example because Mike, I felt, you know, Mike is, is one of the best. You know, Mike's a Hall of Famer. I've always, I always felt his play-by-play, it took him longer to reach that level in play-by-play. If you watch his earlier stuff, his play-by-play isn't nearly as polished, but I think he benefited looking back and he really came from home. I, I felt we're probably talking 15 years ago, at least maybe more that Mike is the closest, you know, he's the heir apparent, the wrong word, but he took the baton from Costas. Those two guys in doing what they do in hosting, hosting, anchoring sports, draft studio, whatever. Nobody has ever done it better than those two. They were so gifted beyond belief at that. And I think, Mike, coming from that background, that helps him in doing what you're talking about and telling those stories. And, and I think also, you know, we get better at it. We get older, we become more experienced, and maybe we take a wider angle lens. There are probably games that you did when you were younger. You know, we, we've all, if you're doing a ball state volleyball game or a high school volleyball game when you're 21 years old, you're treating it like the Super Bowl. Because it is the Super Bowl to you, and you're so intense on on what's happening in the game and the play-by-play of it and honing your craft, you don't have your older person wide-angle view of the storyline and what and what matters. And I think that's something. Even when I was, you know, I was at knock on wood, I was at ABC very, very young, and I was still in my twenties. And I remember them talking about storyline, storyline, stars, and storylines. And I'm sitting with Hall of Famers all around me. This is ABC College Football in 2000. Here's your roster. Here are your five guys, okay? Keith Jackson, Brent Musburger, Sean McDonough, Brad Nessler, and me. (laughs) As I called it then and now, a veritable who's who and one who's that. (laughs) And this is the group I'm in. And I remember still at that time having to sort of adopt that superstar storyline thing because I was like, you know, game, 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 call the game, call the game, call the game. 
and I, I think a lot of it just just comes with time. But the TV radio thing, and that's a separate, sure, yeah, you know, uh, educational conversation. But the, the ability to get in what you can get in is is critical. When I got to, you know, I, I think I was probably more prepared to do Red Sox. And you were asking about MMA. I, I did have concerns about that. Four years ago, I walk into the Red Sox booth, and how many guys? I was very cognizant of the fact there are guys who spend years and decades of their life in the minor leagues for that opportunity to call Major League Baseball. And I knew that while I wasn't, I, I wasn't jumping the line, I'd been in the business for 20 years and I'd done everything there is to do, I was very aware that there were a lot of people that are never going to get that shot. And that was very, it was a sacred thing to me. But I wasn't concerned, you know, baseball, calling baseball was in my DNA. So I wasn't concerned about it like I would have been MMA. But that was a different way to tell stories and you know, different time, time you wish you had sometimes uh, in the NBA. And it's only gotten worse because in the NBA, there's far more possessions per minute. You know, in the course of the game, the game goes faster. It's harder for my partner, Cedric Maxwell, to get in at all sometimes during the games when the, you know, when the possessions are going back and forth. How much do you, yeah, I mean, how much do you find yourself being able to address anything that's not legit play-by-play uh, how much how much are you pulling back um and uh, i guess when do you, when do you quote-unquote go um in terms of adjusting to can, can you talk when they're just on the perimeter uh do you just talk when they're when they're at the free throw line or are you pretty much honed in on on ball and, and player and go from there i think it, you ask yourself the question are you doing the game with an analyst or not it's probably the first thing that pops into my mind because you've got to you know it's very difficult Basketball and hockey, it's very difficult for an analyst to get in on radio. Hockey is a little more cut and dry. You know, hockey when the puck's on the other end of the ice, you know, an icing attempt or a dump on a power play or whatever when you're clearing the zone. There are, are moments. And listen, this is all play-by-play play is music. So it's it's very much like, like jazz or playing music with somebody else. You, have, you know where the holes are and what it sounds like. Max and I, and obviously we have the chemistry sort of right away, but this is – going to be 17 years for max and i yeah. we know you know you, to the point where we did a t- some tv work a few years ago together and it didn't look the way it's supposed to look on tv because he almost he almost looked away from me because we don't look at each other we just know what it's, we know how to go on audio and it was actually it was an interesting dynamic that happened because of that you just know when the other person stops but i when the when the ball's in play Generally, the rule of thumb for my I'll give Max, he knows when the ball's back across half court, it's time to give it up. Now, remember, we're in an age, it used to be at a 24-second clock, but now, just like in Major League Baseball is the opposite, it's far more efficient to take more pitches and extend the game in the NBA and in college basketball, too. It's, your offense is far more efficient if you go earlier in the shot clock. So teams are looking to go earlier in the shot clock. That said... Free throws, there's always built-in timeouts. You're always going to have commercials. You have to read in, you know, live drops to get in. And, you you know, you you find a way as much as possible. It's uh, We always wish we had more time, but we, we make do. We, we don't have any rain delays. How detailed do you like to get in terms of description? Uh, and how much is too much um, in terms of uh, what the guy's, you know, where's his headband, uh, you know, how high is he dribbling, what kind of sneakers is he wearing, um, and then how much do you just kind of want to – how much of that is positive and how much of that becomes too much noise? I think that it's all, it's very difficult within the course of an NBA game 
it would seem to be almost very difficult to become too detailed because when is the time for that? When do you have time to talk about a guy's sneakers that you are not inherently not following the ball? Um, you know, I, I think to me that that's a basic cardinal rule, particularly in the offensive end. Where, you know, where, where is the ball? And there are times, once in a while, Max slides over to TV. I've had a few opportunities to do a game by myself. I do it a little differently when that comes up, and I might go a little more baseball on it and get a little more descriptive if Max isn't there. And there's time to talk about, particularly a guy, even in a free throw situation, you can talk about, you know, with Isaiah Thomas, it was a big deal whether he wore his headband or not, or, you know, things like you, you want to be able to paint as much of it as you can. And the best rem- reminder you get in my job is once in a while, you will get an email, a note from someone with vision issues. They're either blind or they're mm. you know, partially sighted or whatever. And it is, there is no better reminder and centering device for what my job is than when you hear from someone who has to follow your words to follow the Celtics. And that that's where the reward comes from in doing, you know, there's no, there's no more rewarding thing. Like it's, you get, there's an institutional thing after a while at the end of every year, I know people have gotten so accustomed to Max and I, and you get sort of on a much, 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 much smaller scale. You get Vin Scullied in that you become a part of people's, lives but in those specific cases when the people really are depending on you yeah that uh you know that matters a great deal when you first broke into the nba uh and and you were the youngest guy in the league um and and i mean this from a technical standpoint what was most important to you and and to your success as a as a young guy who's just figuring things out in the nba uh to putting on a successful broadcast uh, and I don't necessarily mean like the the networking aspects and things like that, but when when you're in the NBA and you're you're sink or swim and you're 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 the quote unquote youngest guy in the league, um, what was most important to you on the air um, at that point in time to make sure I get this right? Well, it wasn't MMA by any stretch of the imagination, but basketball, which has become obviously my life, and at this point, looks like it'll be the first line of my obituary <laughs> basketball was a distant distant number four for me growing up interesting distant number four people say what was your sport i couldn't choose between hockey baseball and football but i knew basketball was always number four and when it came to the winter time growing up in new york i would you know you know i would watch a knicks game if the rangers weren't playing <laughs> okay and maybe if the islanders weren't playing either so it was like that, that was the thing so i didn't have the same i'd done a lot of college games but the nba wasn't my you know, it wasn't my go-to, and that's another thing about I talk about being available, and you know that was the job. They came the two jobs. The summer I was ready to go, and that I was probably going to get a job. The two jobs that opened were the expansion, Nashville Predators, and and Timberwolves. And the other issue was it was a TV job, so the dynamic was, you know, a lot different. You had a, a, a partner when I went into the league, and Trent Tucker, who had played for my Knicks, you know, when I was a kid, and it was going to, you know, it was clearly his show. Um, I think I'd been, I was doing a lot more TV at that time, so that wasn't as much of a concern. Learning not just the NBA, but a new market. I had grown up, I'd spent most of my life in New York and some of it in Boston at that point, and all of a sudden, I'm living in Minneapolis, and 27 years old and in the NBA and trying to, trying to figure it all out. But I think just like a lot of the things we're talking about, studying and preparation and, and learning your team. To me, there's no better... The, the national jobs and the network jobs are great, and I love doing I love doing everything. 
But telling the story of a team from the start of training camp to the end of that team season, to me, is the that's the best job within the context of play-by-play because the this, this story of the season, to be able to tell it, and the dramatic moments and the peaks and valleys, that's the best part of the job. What's it like being on that ride um, and, and being able to grasp that story? I, I mean, that's kind of a broad question, but... Um, you're around the guys all the time. Uh, you, you obviously see every game. You, you get your opportunities to talk to them. Um, what's important for you to find out when you're talking to guys um, about that ride and, and to, to, to find out that is more than just game stories and things of that nature that help paint that picture? I think it is, uh, I've described this many times as, uh, on the one hand, it's it's no different from being in an office. You know, there's people that, that you work with. These are the people you work with, and you get to know them in a, a different way. And, you know, in the pros, I remember being hesitant at first about becoming closer with players and spending more time with them because, number one, it seemed you come from a different place. And, well, that's not professional. You don't want to get to know them too well if you have to be critical on the air. Yeah, and then sure. later, it comes from a human, a human standpoint because, yeah, okay, you can become really close. Now this guy's your buddy, and then tomorrow he gets traded. So that, that's an interesting, you know, you come very close to the coaching staff and I've become very close with, you know, when I was, I was still a young guy in Boston and I've become pretty close with Jimmy O'Brien and, you know, I, all of a sudden one day he quits and, you know, your life, your life changes. And I think, you know, with Doc, you know, we've become, I've become very close with Doc when he was here and you sort of knew one day it would end, but that's a decision you have to make in the pros is, you know, you have to understand the, the sort of business nature of it, but, I think a lot of it is observational. It's institutional memory. Um, you know, certainly in my case, I, I have that bizarre brain that when something happens, uh, I can remember, you know what? We were here in Indiana nine years ago with such, you know, Rajon Rondo at the first three he'd ever hit on the road in the NBA. And now tonight, Terry Rozier just did it. Uh, that when you're around a team, that kind of stuff becomes, you know, sort of institutionalized. My first team like that was probably at Boston University, like the hockey team for about 10 years. I did most of the games. I had seen all the games. You know, so you, you build up the knowledge that way. Is there something you like to ask guys? And that's probably too broad of a question. But is there is there a question you feel like um, or a couple of questions you feel like elicits uh, an answer from somebody that, uh, is more helpful than just the, you know, what were you thinking when you took this shot, walk me through this play, that kind of stuff, or maybe a line of questions. I think, I think that's an interesting question, but I don't think there is one specific answer. I think as anybody will tell you interviewing, and that's a skill i never have been completely comfortable with. And granted 99% of my interviews that I think that's not wrong. Uh, 99% of my player interviews, that I've done in my life have been immediately after a game, which is its <laughs> own, it, it's, it's, it's very own dynamic. And yeah. always, it always felt like I wanted to be better. Like I know I'm a play by play guy. I've always wanted to be great at that too. And I never felt, I, I still don't feel, you can always get better. You can always, you know, evolve. I always think of, uh, uh, inside the actor studio where yeah. James Lipton had the cast of the, had the cast of the Simpsons on. And he's, <laughs> he's talking to, uh, uh, Harry Shearer as Rainier Wolfcastle 
you know, the, the Schwarzenegger ripoff. Uh-huh. And he's like, I, I'd like to address something here for my acting students. And Harry Shearer just immediately, we are all acting students, James. We are all acting students. You know, and that's that's the point. Like, we're, I always think of that line because we're all you're always learning and you're always getting better. But I don't think there is one. And if anyone will tell you who's an interviewer listening is that's where your best questions come from is listening to the answer before. And again, doing interviews in post-game situations, your scope isn't the same. True. You know, there's a rare situation where, all right, a great example, and it's extremely relevant as we talk this week in the aftermath of the trade. Normally, you don't go outside of what has just happened in the game, even if there's some kind of controversy about a player or whatever. You know, uh, something happened a few weeks ago with a player. It's not the time or place. Now, when you're with a team the entire course of a year, we had Jay Crowder on after a game last year, and it was maybe 10 days or two weeks after Utah had come in. And Jay Crowder had this amazing relationship with the fans and a great time here in Boston, but he did not react well when the fans cheered for Gordon Hayward last year when he came in for Utah. This is one of the many subplots of the trade. And he reacted that he was hurt by it because this is a guy that played his position. And he felt fans were disrespecting him, and the fans were upset that he was upset. And you had a lovers' quarrel basically between the two sides. And that was an example of here's Jay, maybe ten days later, and we do the hey, wasn't that a great game? And isn't Isaiah great? And this kind of thing happened in the third quarter. What was going on there? What did you say to so and so when that whole thing happened? But at the end, Jay, it's been ten days, two weeks, or whatever since this thing happened. We haven't had a chance to talk to you about it. What was going through your head now that you've had a few home games and everything is the pressure of it is gone? Tell me about, you know, you don't want to let things go completely because you might. It's also a fascinating time if the situation allows and the question is not inappropriate in terms of time or place. Mm. Sometimes you get great answers because it's a different uh, time chemically for, you know, anyone that's ever had, you know, endorphins or whatever. The game is over. You're in a different place in your frame of mind, if we're talking to you, you've won the game and you've played well by definition. So there's always, you know, opportunities, but the, that's again, a podcast answer. The talk show answer is listening. You listen to get, there isn't one specific question. It's about, you know, being prepared. You know, I remember as, as years have gone by, it's thinking more, all right, who are we going to have after the game, even during the game, who are we going to have after the game? And is there anything else going on with what, that might be relevant. I tried during a break in the fourth quarter just to take 30 seconds because that's all you have to think that through. Yeah, no, that's inter- that's that's actually interesting. To the the added part of what beyond today can we talk to them about it? I think is interesting on that front too because most of the time we get caught up in you drop 24. How'd you do it? Something like that, but not being able to to branch off into something where you might get that that better answer. So that was I'm, I'm glad you went that way with it. Um, generally speaking. Um, what makes good basketball on the radio to you? Uh, similar to making good hockey on the radio, which people always say, how do you do hockey on the radio? That's amazing that you call <laughs> hockey. That always seems like the hardest. And it's usually because people don't know hockey as well. So, of course, to them, it seems boring, whereas I grew up with it. I don't think that calling hockey well and calling basketball well is as different as people think it is because there's – you have to make decisions as you know as to what's important. So I think energy level is a simple answer. Communicating with your voice outside of your words. What I mean by that is in hockey, you have a very limited number of words 
to use in or should indicate what I call danger. You should be able, you know, when the puck is in a precarious opportunity to score, to in addition to your words, should be able to communicate that. And the same holds true, you know, in, in basketball. I think people should be able to tell a little bit more. In the transcript of your play-by-play, it shouldn't give them the same picture that they got when they listen to it because how you use your voice to, you know, you have to, you don't have the words you want to say. So it's that, that weighs into that. That's a fairly simplistic answer on, you know, what makes good broadcast is it's you know, going to be different for everybody. You're also dealing with an, you know, audience once in a while, you get 99 people on Twitter who say, or wherever on social media, anyway, said, man, you're great. You're, aren't you great? And then there's one once in a while, you'll say, man, he talks too much. How can you talk too much doing a game? It's like, like, <laughs> like to talk kind, but it's amazing that people actually want you know on radio, not TV, but radio. So it's uh, every in the point being there that you are, and you know I, I tell this to people. This took me a lot of years to realize it, so maybe I can save you the time because we are in a business with, you know, we grew up watching sports where the best players play, and we have chosen a profession that does not work the same way. And it leads to a lot of people spending a lot of years getting frustrated looking at the TV or listening to saying, man, I'm as good as that guy. Man, I'm better than that guy. Why not me? Why not me? Why not me? And it doesn't work that way. And it, when I finally, it took me years and years to come up with, you are a chef. And you may be the best chef in the world, but if you, if your specialty is steak tartare and the guy you're serving it to likes his stuff well done, He's not going to like what you're cooking, even if you make the best steak tartare in the world. So not everybody is going to, you know, enjoy the way you do it inherently. And people will say, oh, that's the subjective nature. Or that's a more detailed illustration of what it is. So you, you can't please everybody, but you have to, you know, give them as much information, be as entertaining. And for God's sake, you have to be enjoying yourself because if you aren't, nobody listening or watching you is. How long did it take you to figure out how to uh, play with your voice the right way to convey emotion the way that you wanted it to? Uh, practice, practice, practice. <laughs> I think most of us, I think 90, 99%. Um, you know, it doesn't, listen, I was, I, I was married for nine years and it didn't seem to matter how I said things. You know, It's always going to be misinterpreted. So you try <laughs> within the professional realm to, you know, the to, to master that. Uh, I think that most of us, uh, there are obviously exceptions, but I think mostly if you listen to your stuff from five or six years ago, you'll probably say, man, I was probably too excited yeah. about that. I was probably too, uh, yeah, that's the way, the way it goes. Listen, I've got, I mean, I'm old enough to have called like Tony Amante goals. College. <laughs> I remember losing, losing my mind on one, you know, because you just don't, you don't have that, the control of it. It's uh, the, the the three P theory, which is what I what I what I teach is preparation is the base of it. You can't call a bad game if you are exquisitely prepared. You if you are not prepared, it's not possible. The second thing is passion. On top of that, you have to be extremely passionate about the game and the storytelling and whatever that comes on top. But then the third one is the key, and that's poise, which is being able to mix those two with your voice and not go crazy. Uh, there was someone that had a tweet 
uh, you know, Joe Davis called that game on, as we talk, it's Thursday, so the Wednesday night game with Rich Hill. Yeah. Basically taking that perfect game into the 10th inning. And he talked about something that Vin Scully told him, and I've you know, a lot of us older guys have talked about this for years, which and it's a good, he just happened to tweet it out yesterday, but it's something that is, you know, sort of well, very well known within the industry and a great rule of thumb. The more insane and intense on the field, on the ice, in the cage, whatever, the calmer you need to be. And, I don't consider. I don't really remember a lot specifically about my calls from game seven, doing the game seven of the NBA Finals. I just remember my goal that night was to be. It's game seven of the NBA Finals. Nothing. You know, I've got a lot of stories of ancillary stuff of sitting in the front row and all the other stuff that happens. A lot of memories and just Doris Burke and I kicking each other under the table. Like, do you believe? You know, like 12-year-olds, like, do you, do you believe where you're sitting? But the game was just call it as fundamentally correct and mistake-free as you can NBA Finals. There's, there's, no, there's no reason to overreach. You don't have to sell. There's no, there's no storylines to work in. It's the storyline of storylines. And, you know, the, the, the moments will deliver the moments. And sometimes that requires more of you, and sometimes it requires less. Do you recall, was there a time during that game where you had to say to yourself, um, stay calm, basically, and, and kind of remind yourself of that? <laughs> I'm laughing because I had to tell my partner that. Uh, <laughs> because he got what happened with Max, and it's now uh, everyone understands it more because of the 30 for 30 this past summer. Max, is, Max started having like these... Uh, you know, apocalypse now flashbacks and Max Johnson was there and he was sort of in his face and Max, who's, you know, fairly disconnected and as sort of impartial as it gets, he was becoming involved in the game and getting upset when the lead was disappearing. So I was more concerned about sort of reining him, you know, reining him in our engineer who had, we don't normally travel him, but we did to the end of the NBA finals. And he was saying, well, when the Celtics win, this is how we're going to cover it. And Max was like, shut up, stop saying that out loud, you know, like stop jinx. And all of a sudden, so I had to stay even more calm because he was sort of, you know, um, there was a play in game six. When the Celtics won the Eastern Conference Championship in Detroit in 2008, there was a crazy scramble, one of those plays you rarely get in hockey, but you don't get in a basketball where one thing happens. Then another, then another, then another, and there's no resolution to the play. It's, you know, a missed shot, missed shot, maybe a steal. It's not a normal end of a play. So you're, you have to keep going up and up and up and up. And at one point, uh, the ball ended up in the hands of Paul Pierce off like a third offensive rebound. And Rip Hamilton, it's a very emotional play because the, the Pistons are losing the lead. Rip Hamilton is running up from behind to try to get the ball from him. And Paul doesn't see him. And Max, in the middle of this, and I'm going – a and B and a missed shot, and this just happened. An offensive rebound, another missed shot, another offensive rebound, kicked out the pierce, and all of a sudden Max is like, Paul, look out! <laughs> I mean, out of, you know, I, he rarely loses it like that, but he did during the game because he got so emotionally involved. So uh, keeping it, you know, keeping it together is uh, is an important part of that, too. I don't remember you know, specific things from Game 7. I don't, you know, or, or whatever. I don't remember moments or having to rein myself in. I remember I still have the piece of paper. I don't know where it is. Uh, at one point, you could feel the you could feel the millions of people watching. I remember we're in the front row and you can imagine the celebrities at, you know, in game one of the finals, let alone game seven. And I I look up on the court before the game and there's Spielberg, Stallone, and Eddie Murphy. <laughs> and this is like my 
10 feet away from me. And when the game starts, they and Dustin Hoffman and everybody, they're like sitting behind me. So I'm in front of them calling this game because the Lakers, God bless them, are one of the few teams in the NBA that still has the, you know, the broadcasters uh, front and center. But somewhere I have a piece of paper. I'm going to, I'm going to have her sign it one day when I find it. Uh, it's, we kept looking at each other with this goofy look on our face. And at one point, she goes to the end of the first quarter to go interview Duck at the end of the quarter you know, piece for ABC. And I drew a circle on our statue. And I drew a little dot in the middle of it. And over the big circle, I wrote world. And at the dot, I wrote us. And... You know, when she came back, I just had it sitting in front of her, and it really—that's what it felt like. It just felt like being at the absolute center of the of the universe for three hours. Sean, I feel like I could uh, pick your brain forever, but I've uh, taken an hour of your night. Uh, so uh, I appreciate you for doing this. But this is what you do. You get to tease a part two. You know, for yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be glad to have you back. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd love to at some point, but, uh, this is, this has been awesome. So thank you so much for, uh, for lending me your time and letting me pick your brain a little bit. I don't know what to add to all of that. Uh, that was a pretty thorough conversation. We'll have to have Sean back on because there will be a part two. I legitimately could have gone another hour with the guy. Uh, so I am forever grateful, uh, to Sean for taking the time to, uh, to do that, uh, podcast with me, to do this podcast with me. Uh, and let me pick his brain about uh, a wide array of topics. Um, and sorry for the end there. As as let's go back to wrestling. As Stone Cold Steve Austin would say, a, a little bit of audio discombobulation uh, there at the end. But uh, my apologies. I think the point got through. I think on the last the last answer, the last answer and a half, uh, where there was a little bit of cutting in and out. Uh, in the meantime, we are well over an hour for this episode of the podcast which means you have probably made it to and from work twice at this point, depending on what your job is and, and how far from home it is. Uh, so we will say goodbye. Kristen Neri is our guest next week on the podcast. He is the television voice of the Indiana Pacers. And for this week, the television voice of Ball State versus Illinois football, coming your way live from Champaign on Saturday. Uh, Chris and I had a chance to sit down when he was up at practice at Schumann Stadium uh, earlier this week checking out the cards and uh, talking to the coaching staff. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about college football. We'll talk a little bit about uh, basketball as well. Chris Denary will be our guest on next week's episode of the podcast. Many thanks to Sean Grandy. Many thanks to all of you for clicking subscribe or download, rating and reviewing, and being a part of the Play-By-Play cast community. Remember, interact with us on Twitter. We're at PXPCast. And until next week, we are out.